It's been said, timing is everything. Which reminds me of the insurance agent who got a frantic call. A woman asked, hey, do you sell homeowner's insurance? The agent replied, oh, yes, I sure do. She said, can I buy a policy over the phone? The agent replied, no, I'll have to come out to your house and I'll have to sign the paperwork. The lady shouted back, well, you better hurry because my house is on fire. As I said, timing is everything. And that's certainly true when it comes to the plans and the purposes of God. I've heard it put, there are three things a man can do without sensing he's wasting time. Make war, court a woman, and create art. I would add a fourth, wait on God. For time spent waiting on God is never wasted. And Jesus showed a marvelous sense of God's timing. Verse 1 begins, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, days earlier in Jerusalem, Jesus had healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda. And in doing so, he had violated the Jewish Sabbath laws. In his defense, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. From his perspective, all he had done was to follow the lead of his Father in heaven. And yet Jesus' logic inflamed the bloodthirsty fury of the temple priests. Thus he retreated to Galilee until their passions had cooled. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And of course this required all Jewish males 20 years old and older to travel to Jerusalem. If Jesus was to obey the law, ready or not, he had to go. And so his brothers, that is Mary's other boys, therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. And here they get a little sarcastic. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. According to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, Mary and Joseph had other children. At least four boys and two girls. Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters, which, by the way, means that he grew up in a blended family. He lived with that dynamic. He and his siblings knew that they didn't share the same father. Could it be that Joseph's kids scoffed at Jesus? Did they doubt the idea of his virgin birth? Did they consider it a family fable, a scandal, perhaps a cover-up? Or could it be they were just jealous? After all, Jesus was sinless. I would imagine the other kids got tired of hearing Mary always say, why can't you be like your older brother? Living in the shadow of a successful sibling is tough enough, but imagine if your big brother was God. Whatever their reasons, Joseph's kids didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And here the brothers give Jesus some advice, as if they're his publicity manager. If he wants the world to trust him, then why not seek the largest stage possible? Go to Jerusalem. The city will be crowded at the feast. It's the perfect opportunity to prove yourself. But then Jesus said to them, 
My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. In other words, timing is everything. Here's a lesson we all need to learn. Every opportunity doesn't constitute a calling from God. Just because it makes sense doesn't mean it's God's will. Just because we can doesn't mean that we should. Jesus was prompted by obedience, not just opportunity. He was working off heaven's timetable. Verse 7 continues Jesus' reply. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Even though Jesus tried to avoid the limelight, he was still the hot topic in Jerusalem. Publicly, the Jewish officials were hostile to Jesus, while privately, folks were debating his claims. Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Jesus sensed it was now the right time. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied. Now, it's not that Jesus was ignorant of the Bible. Trust me, his mind was steeped in the Scriptures. What the Jews note here was Jesus' lack of formal theological training. You see, every rabbi studied in the yeshiva, the Jewish seminary. Then they served an apprenticeship under another rabbi. But Jesus was a rabbi with no rabbi. It's been said of him, While the scribes and Pharisees taught from authorities, quoting all the famous rabbis, Jesus taught with authority. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus wasn't man taught, but God taught. The Father God was Jesus' rabbi. He lacked the proper credentials in the eyes of the Jewish authorities, and yet he taught with wisdom from above. And then verse 17, if anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And this is so important. In other words, it's a willing heart, not just an inquisitive mind that ultimately discerns God's ways and truth. Jesus says, if anyone wants to do God's will, those are the people who understand. Who want to do, not who just want to speculate and hypothesize. But if you want to do God's will, God will enable you to know his truth. The desire to know what has to be coupled with the desire to do. For he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Every Bible teacher should have as his goal to please God, not himself. Every Bible teacher should think, do I preach to be popular or do I preach to be faithful? And then Jesus asked them a question. 
Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Now now remember, this exchange is happening in the temple. It's the feast. That means it's a packed house. And the Jewish hierarchy is all on hand. Now Jesus boldly exposes their hypocrisy. He says, why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They think Jesus is crazy, even possessed. The priestly plot to kill him was unknown to the rank and file at this point. Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. He's talking about the healing of the lame man there by the pool of Bethesda. He says, Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now Jesus is about to point out the hypocrisy and how the Jews had applied the Sabbath laws. The law commanded every Jewish male to be circumcised. And on the eighth day after his birth... And the rabbis were strict about the eighth day. In fact, even if it meant performing the circumcision on the Sabbath, you still, you were circumcised on the eighth day. Thus they allowed for some work to be done on the Sabbath. Jesus continues, Well, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? I mean, it seems performing a circumcision is a trivial procedure compared to healing a man who'd been crippled for 38 years. What are you complaining about? Verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. See, the Jews were all about their rules and their rituals while ignoring what was just and what was right. And this is the problem with a legalist. They major on the minors... And they minor on the majors. It was July 4th, 1776. July 4th, 1776. Pretty important day for us. When King George II of England logged the following entry into his journal. Nothing of importance happened today. He ignored a revolution that had started a movement in the Americas that would dismantle his empire. He misjudged events. Often things are not what they seem. Be careful of making a judgment until all the crucial facts are in. And then he says in verse 25, Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Now, there were some from Jerusalem who wondered if his opponent's silence meant that they had changed their minds and they had accepted him as their Messiah. But here they spew out their own reservations. However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, this was an an unbiblical hurdle they had erected in their own minds. Some rabbis had erroneously taught that Messiah would come suddenly and mysteriously. In other words, you'd be unable to trace his origins. Yet everyone knew Jesus. They knew his family tree. His genealogy was common knowledge. His brothers were local. They knew he was from Nazareth. 
Actually, the Old Testament had spoken volumes concerning Messiah's lineage. The Scriptures trace Messiah's ancestry back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, even to David. Verse 28, Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. You see, the Jews had traced their Jesus' origins to Nazareth. But Jesus says, that's not far enough. I'm from heaven. Not just Nazareth. Again, that Jesus existed prior to his birth was a claim to deity. Human life doesn't pre-exist. We begin at conception. But Jesus was sent by God from heaven. And here Jesus is throwing gas on the fire of opposition. The Jews distinguished themselves from the world's idolaters as the people who knew the one true God. But Jesus defies that. He says, him you do not know. Then they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because timing is everything. Because his hour had not yet come. Their threats almost mushroomed into action, but God trumped their anger. And Many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? I mean, how could he? he, he Jesus had done so many signs and miracles. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. This time, a warrant gets issued. But again, no arrest ever occurs. And why? It was not God's time. Timing is everything. Well, then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? The dispersion or the diaspora were the Jews living outside of Israel. Here the Pharisees think Jesus is leaving the country. They continue, what is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me and where I am, you cannot come. You know, actually Jesus was going abroad, but a little further than anybody thought. He was sent from heaven and he would return to heaven. Jesus was headed where the Pharisees would never follow him. And how sobering to compare Jesus' promise to these Jews, the unbelieving Jews, with his promise to his disciples, those who believed in him. You remember in John 14, verse 13, Jesus tells his own men, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's his promise to us, to those who believe. But to those who don't believe, he says, where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37. Now on the last day, that great day of the feast. Now remember, verse 2 tells us that this was the Feast of Tabernacles. Even today, this Jewish feast is packed full of symbolism. All week long, people sleep outside under booths, 
or tabernacles, or we might call them tents. They do so to commemorate how God provided for them as they roamed through the wilderness for those 40 years. And this was the last day, the great day of the feast. It was the closing ceremonies. And always the best is saved for last. There was a ritual, and here's what would happen. The priest would lead a procession from the temple down to the pool of Siloam, south of Jerusalem. There they would draw water from the pool, and they would fill up their golden vessels. Then they would return to the temple by way of the water gate, circle the altar, and finally pour out their pitchers. This ritual looked both backwards and forwards. It reminded Israel of the miracle that God worked in the wilderness when he brought water from the rock. But it also looked forward to the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the people of God in the latter days. And it was immediately after the ceremonial vessels were emptied and the water was poured out that Jesus offered to make this ritual a reality. That's what he did in my life. I grew up in church. It was all about ceremonies and rituals and traditions. But Jesus turned my rituals into reality when he came into my life and worked miracles and gave me his life. He can still turn the abstract into action. John tells us in verse 37, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. On that day and today, Jesus is the rock in our spiritual wilderness. And if we come to Jesus and believe that he's the answer, then the water of refreshment, of spiritual vitality, will bubble up in us and flow like a river. Friends, come to Jesus and like a waterfall, a rush of power, a spray of love will rise up and influence the people around you through your life. Come to me, anyone who thirsts, and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It would be after his resurrection in John 20, once they had believed in the risen Christ, that Jesus will breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. Then verse 40, therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, that is the Messiah. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? See, apparently the crowd knew Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which predicted that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But Jesus had been raised in the town of Nazareth. So there was a division among the people because of him. This also shows the superficiality of their research. For if they'd done a thorough vetting and talked to his family, they would have known that though Jesus grew up in Galilee, he had been born in Bethlehem. 
Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Now these were the temple police who in verse 32 were issued a warrant. Now the priests want to know why an arrest hasn't been made. And here's their answer. The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. I mean, even his critics realized that Jesus was one of a kind. Here here are cops doing their job. And they're forced, forced to back off due to the gravitas that Jesus possessed. Verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Notice they're such snobs. These religious rulers. They looked down their nose at the common folk. They felt superior to the masses. They even reassured themselves that none of their own had broken ranks and believed in him. But that wasn't true. For you recall the rabbi who came to Jesus in chapter 3 at night and was told he needed to be born again? You remember him? Well, speaking of Nicodemus, verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him? And knows what he is doing? According to John 19 verse 38, Nicodemus and another Jewish leader, Joseph of Arimathea, had become disciples of Jesus. In fact, John says of Joseph, but secretly for fear of the Jews. This was also true of Nicodemus. Here though, Nicodemus steps up. He goes to bat for Jesus. He says, wait a minute, this man deserves a fair trial. We need to let him speak for himself. Verse 52 They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now the Pharisees tried to justify their rejection of Jesus with their prejudice toward Galileans. Understand, uppity Jews in Jerusalem assumed that backwoods Galileans married their cousins, kept dogs under their front porch, and drank moonshine, and had tire swings in their front yard. You know, like folks today from Alabama. (laughs) You know. I'm sorry about that. And they kind of rationalized, how in the world can a prophet come from Galilee? But here again, the Jews reveal their ignorance of the Scriptures. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, lists Jonah's hometown as Gath Hefer. It was a village three miles northeast of Nazareth. Jonah was a Galilean. Remember, too, where Jesus made his headquarters in Galilee, it was Capernaum or Capharnaum, which means village of Nahum. Apparently, Nahum, too, was a Galilean. Good things do come out of Galilee and Alabama, I suppose. (laughs) Well, chapter 7 ends and chapter 8 begins. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus exited the temple. He crossed the Kidron Valley, climbed up the Mount of Olives, and he camped for the night, probably in a garden. 
Maybe his favorite garden called Gethsemane. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Now the Feast of Tabernacles is over and usually the pilgrims head home the next day. But quite a crowd chose to spend an extra day with Jesus. And we read about it in verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now, before we we read the following story, we first need to address an issue. There is a controversy as to whether the story of the woman taken in adultery actually belongs in the Bible. If you're reading the NIV, the nearly inspired, I mean the new inspired, whatever it is. But if you're reading the NIV or if you're reading one of the more modern translations, there is a preface to chapter 8 which reads as follows. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, verse 53 through John 8, verse 11. And to me, that statement is misleading. Yes, this account is omitted in some Greek manuscripts, but the story is in some very old manuscripts, and it gets referred to by many of the early church fathers. A man named Papias mentions this story as early as 100 A.D. St. Augustine explained why this passage was left out of some of the biblical manuscripts. He said that a few copyists feared that Jesus' kindness toward an immoral woman could be misconstrued as condoning adultery. The copyists feared that folks would stumble over grace. Not the last time people have been afraid of God's grace. I like scholar F.B. Myers' comment on John 8, verse 1 through 11. He writes, There is no possibility of accounting for its existence except that the incident really took place. It reveals in our Savior's character a wisdom so profound, a tenderness to sinners so delicate, a hatred of sin so intense, an insight into human hearts so searching that it's impossible to suppose that the mind of man could have conceived it or the hand of man could have invented it. And I agree. To me, there's no doubt that this wonderful account of forgiveness belongs in our Bibles. Verse 3 begins. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And it makes you wonder how they caught her in the very act. And where was the man? Last time I took, I looked, last time I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery. Where's the man? In fact, Deuteronomy 22 verse 22 is crystal clear. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The fact that the man here is conspicuously missing concludes that this was a setup. This woman had been trapped in order to spring a trap on Jesus. Now imagine the scene. Jesus is teaching in the temple when angry, growling voices get louder and louder. These people are getting closer and closer. Suddenly the crowd breaks like the Red Sea. And up stomps these self-righteous Pharisees dragging a frightened, nearly naked woman behind them. They sling her at Jesus like a queasy new dad tosses a smelly diaper into the trash. (laughs) They're spewing judgments, spitting out accusations, 
poking their fingers at her as if they're thrusting swords. And the woman, what a sight she was. She's lying there on the cold marble temple floor in a fetal position. Tears have cut trenches in her heavy makeup. At a distance, she looks pretty, but up close, this woman is worn and haggard. She's been used and abused, objectified by men and scorned by other women. Years of abuse have ruined her body, and worse, it's hardened and embittered her soul. She probably hated everybody, especially the haughty Pharisees who were barking at Jesus. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What? But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. On the one hand, if he turns her loose, it's a flagrant disregard for the law. Jesus could be branded as soft on sin. On the other hand, if he picks up a rock to stone her, then he's destroyed his reputation of being a friend of sinners and a man of mercy. Either way, the Jewish leaders believe they finally outfoxed Jesus. Ooh, they got him now. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. He just doodled in the dirt. As though he did not hear. Please note that. As though he did not hear their accusations. It wasn't just what he wrote that was so significant. It's what he did not hear. Their accusations and their condemnations. And friends, let this be good news for the sinner. Jesus is still deaf to the railings and judgments people hurl at sinners like us. Who he wants to forgive if we trust him. Well, the Pharisees are snarling. They're demanding an answer. Jesus just ignores them. He bends down and he starts doodling in the dirt. And what he wrote, we don't know, but the word translated wrote is the Greek word katagrapho, which means to write against. Trust me, Jesus wasn't listing their positive attributes. Most likely, he was writing accusations against these Jewish leaders. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. One Greek manuscript in which this story does appear adds a footnote. It says that Jesus wrote in the dirt the sins of each of his accusers. Perhaps he started writing the names of the Pharisees' girlfriends or prostitutes. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. The rocks that had been held in tightly drawn fists started dropping one at a time. And those men holding them, they left the temple and they went home. And then Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And again, what a scene this was. Can you imagine it? When she was thrown at Jesus' feet, there was hate in her eyes. She hated the hypocritical Pharisees. She probably hated men in general. All her life, they'd peeled her like an orange and sucked out her sweetness and then threw away her skin. 
by this point, she was defeated. And yet Jesus had treated her so differently. Oh, she had heard of Jesus by by now. Who hadn't? But she would have never believed a man so holy could be so merciful. She knows he's pure, but now she senses he cares. And for the first time in her life, here's a man who values her as a person instead of seeing her as an object. She's felt the lust of men, but now this feels like love. This is new for her. She is tasting forgiveness for the first time. How glorious. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, the irony is there was only one person in the crowd that day who had never sinned. There was only one man qualified to cast a stone. And yet that man, Jesus, chose not to. Instead, Jesus chose to forgive this woman rather than condemn her. The pharisaical solution for sin was to destroy the sinner. Jesus also hated sin, but he loved sinners, even like us. The Pharisees' remedy for sin was a stone, but Jesus' solution for sin was a stick of wood. A cross. That's how much he loves us. And let me make one more point before we leave this story. Let's make sure that we remember this story, not only when we're in need of forgiveness, but when the stones are in our hands. For if Jesus can forgive this woman with the sordid reputation, why can't you forgive the guilty party in your life? Notice he said to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I'm sure she obeyed. This encounter marked her turning point. You know, love can disarm a cynical attitude. It can break open a padlocked heart. Jesus restored to this woman her value and her virtue. You know, when a person gets used, it cheapens their value. But when they get saved, it adds to their self-worth. They become upgraded. Jesus gave this woman an upgrade. And from this time forward, she had a new life. I'm certain she became a most devoted follower of Jesus. Now remember, all this happened on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the foremost features of this feast were the lights that decorated the temple. Giant candelabras were erected in the courts of the temple, reminding Israel of the fire by night that guided them through the wilderness, God's presence that led them during those 40 years. These menorahs were enormous. Their bases were 100 feet high. The trunk of the menorah split into four branches, each with large cups on the top for olive oil to burn. The priests would climb these ladders to refill the oil. Worn out priestly garments were used as wicks. Light from the lamps lit up Jerusalem. The city glowed during the seven days of the feast. Each night during the Feast of Tabernacles, folks would gather in the temple courtyard, waving their torches and dancing to the music. It was an all-night celebration. 
But this now is the day after the feast. All the lights have been snuffed out. It was probably as the Levites disassembled the menorahs and cleaned up from the night before that Jesus stood in the temple. And he utters now the following, which was another example of his impeccable timing. Verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Remember, it was morning. Jesus may have pointed to the rising sun, even brighter than the ritual menorahs, and declared, like the light, like the sun, I am the light of the world. Psalm 84, Malachi 4, verse 2, presented the sun as an Old Testament idiom for God or for Yahweh. Jesus is again claiming to be God. I am the light of the world. And those who follow him will not walk in darkness. I used to tell my teenagers, guys, nothing good happens after midnight. If I said that once, I said that a million times. Nothing good happens after midnight. Evildoers seek to cover darkness. It's safer in the light of day. And this is especially true spiritually. Living in the Lord's light is great protection. Then verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, what they mean by that is in a Jewish court, it took two or three witnesses for a claim to be credible. But Jesus now fires back. It is also written in the law. And notice he knew their law better than they did. That the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. In other words, if you need two witnesses to believe in me, Well, then there's God the Father and there's God the Son. You you remember at the end of chapter 5, Jesus actually presented six witnesses that testified of his deity. Himself, John the Baptist, his miracles, his Father in heaven, the Scripture, and Moses. Jesus only needed two. Verse 19, then they said to him, where is your father? And trust me, they said it with a sneer. They're asking, who's your daddy? The Jews had researched Jesus' background and they scoffed at his virgin birth. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You know, people who know both me and my dad say, that I look so much like my dad that there's no doubt that I'm his son. Of course, I've never thought of my dad as that good looking, but that's what folks say, so be it. Yet this was definitely the case with Jesus and his father. If the Jews had truly known God, after they took one look at Jesus, they would have been convinced of the resemblance. Jesus and the father were one. Verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him. Why? Timing is everything. For his hour had not yet come. God's timing alone will dictate Jesus' destiny. Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? 
Now note they accuse him of threatening suicide. In Judaism, the lowest levels of Hades were reserved for folks who took their own life. Thus here the Jews are assigning Jesus the worst damnation possible. The problem though is they miss their own verdict. If you don't follow Jesus, what does he say happens? You'll die in your sin. They miss that. Verse 23, and he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's stressing it. Again, Jesus is from above and he's returning from where he came. If you want to go with him, you need to believe that he is the Messiah. You know, if you don't believe, it doesn't matter how religious you are or how moral you are or how kind you might be, you'll die in your sins. Do you believe in Jesus? Then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand what he spoke to them of the Father. The doctrine of the Trinity was taught throughout the Old Testament. In fact, wherever God the Father speaks to God the Son, but the Jews had missed those references. They didn't see. And then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, he's now talking of his crucifixion, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. At the cross, the world will see why the Father sent his Son. It will all become clear when Jesus is lifted up. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Notice, God the Father never left the Son, and Jesus always pleased his Father. The Son was sinless. And imagine what it took for Jesus to actually say, I always do those things that please the Father. His tongue never waggled a complaint or a slander. His mouth never uttered a trivial word. His ear heard only divine whispers spoken in his direction. His heart was never distracted from the Father's will. His mind never entertained a stray or evil thought. His hands never reached for a forbidden item. What an example Jesus said. In all things, he pleased the Father. And that's why verse 30 is no surprise. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. As the temple police had said earlier, no man ever spoke like this man. Father, we thank you for your words to us this morning.